Section 17 of The Ghost Camp This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boulderwood Chapter 11 A description of the season in Hobart, whether regarded as a summer land for tourists, a safe run ashore for the men and officers of the South Pacific Fleet in being detailed at Hobart, or as an object lesson for untraveled inhabitants, would seem to consist mainly of a record of recreational events, a list of picnics and pleasure parties, driving and fishing excursions with pedestrian rambles, chiefly by day, but occasionally au clair de la lune. The rivers named after Messrs. Brown and Huon, long-dead celebrities, received more than their share of patronage, it would seem, in the entertainment of reckless revelers, whose polo meets and gymkhanas alternated with the legitimate annual races and steeplechases. There must have been business transactions, but they were eluded or postponed, the only exception being the great silver bonanza which kept its bond slaves hard at work by means of remuneration on the higher scale. Night and day work proceeded with the regularity of one of its own steam engines. The Hobart weather was delightful occasionally threatening rain but chiefly relenting and ending towards the close of day with soft and cooling sea breezes which refreshed the pleasure-driven crowds to the inmost fibre of the nervous system in all these ingenious projects for lessening the strain upon the minds and bodies of ordinary humanity the officers and men of h m royal navy were conspicuously effective at all aristocratic entertainments man-of-war jack was utilized to keep the gangways clear to hold the rope of division in the ballroom, and otherwise as the handyman in spotless array, to display his disciplined alertness. Even the naval church parade was attended by the fair ones of perhaps the last night's entertainment. On each Sunday morning, therefore, boatloads of worshippers in silk or muslin might be descried crossing the waters of the harbour, rowed by an ample crew under the charge of an all-important middy, to the flagship or frigate, where divine service was celebrated by the chaplain of the fleet, or other amphibious clergymen provided by the lords of admiralty. In this sense, perhaps, the gay season of Hobart constituted a social federation of the Australasian states, when other matters, not of ephemeral weight, might be suitably discussed. From the wave-beaten isles of New Zealand, where the mountain-crested billows rolled on their stormy march from the ice-fields of the ultimate pole, to the mangrove-bordered marshes of northern Queensland, from the never-never country in the back blocks, from the gulf and the buffalo lands of Essington and Darwin, came languid, fever-stricken squatters to breathe the cool air of this southern lotus-land, differing among themselves in minor respects as to manner, accent, stature, and ordinary habitude, but in heart and brain British to the core. Roving sons of the great motherland, holding God's commission of the strong hand, the steadfast brain, to occupy the waste places of the earth and develop their inborn trend towards justice and mercy, law and order. With such inherited gifts going forth conquering and to conquer, to weld into one solid enduring fabric the empire of Britain. Thus, handing down to their children's children lands of freedom broad-based upon the people's will, where equal laws administered with moderation and mercy are to be the heritage of England's sons, the greater Britons of the South, for all time, and whether in peace or war, loyal, self-contained, immovable, 
one and indivisible the great event of the season was to be the polo ball looked forward to with almost feverish eagerness not only by the young men and maidens of the happy isle but by the large important contingents from abroad which exceeded in number and social value those of any previous year hence applications for tickets were beyond all calculation requests even entreaties poured in almost until the opening of the doors of the great hall secured for the function claude clinton was as he said walked off his legs having indeed hardly time to dress and eat his dinner while the committee who had the onerous and responsible task of deciding upon the fitness of applicants had to improvise a late sitting so as not to disappoint the arrivals by train from launceston just landed from the new zealand company's extra service boat the rotorua the funds of the club however would be benefited to such an extent that the secretary and committee worked loyally to the last moment and when mr clinton had given a last authoritative order and made a final inspection of the decorations he sat down to his dinner at the travellers club and drank his pint of champagne with a conviction that everything had been done to deserve success and that the issue lay with fate imogene had condescended to inform her relations that a friend of hers had arrived from melbourne who having made up her mind at the last moment would dress and join their party after dining at the orient hotel where rooms had been secured for her previously she had written confidentially to mr clinton and had her name properly submitted to and passed by the committee all was arranged and she would go under imogene's chaperonage to the ball and perhaps stay with them all night what is her name do i know her imogene inquired her husband you are very mysterious my dear you have seen her she tells me but i am not certain whether you will recognize her she comes from some place near adelong in new south wales her people used to live in Tumut. then the probability is that she will be good-looking said mr blunt some of the handsomest girls i ever saw came from that sequestered spot however we must wait till she shows up was she a schoolfellow of yours no not exactly but i knew her when she was younger you will know all about her when the time comes i feel desperately hungry after this exciting day oh i hear the dinner gong the dinner was not unduly prolonged as any one of experience in the anxieties and precautions which precede such an important function will understand so that after an adjournment to the drawing-room when about nine o'clock the maid delivered a message sotto voce to mrs imogene who forthwith left the room every one resolved great expectations these were chiefly realized when the hostess reappeared accompanied by a tall handsome exceedingly well-dressed girl who blushed and smiled as she was introduced to the company as miss mcguire of warrenbean very pleased to meet you miss mcguire began blunt but with a sudden alteration of tone and manner why it's sheila by all the powers what a transformation as mrs bruce shook her warmly by the hand while imogene stood by her charge apparently charmed with the metamorphosis which leisure the use and reputation of money had effected in the unformed country girl so lately the maid of the inn at the secluded village of bunjil on the upper sturt you didn't know me mr blunt i could see that i had half a mind to ask you what you'd like for breakfast i'm turned into a young lady nowadays you see and mrs blunt in her great kindness persuaded me to come to the ball to-night with her and mrs bruce i've been to the show ball at wagga and one or two in tumut by way of a start 
but this is such a grand affair I feel frightened. I am sure, Sheila, you have no cause to be, said Mrs. Bruce reassuringly. You native girls can all dance, it seems an instinct. Your dress is charming, and you will gather confidence as the ball goes on and your card is filled. You are a mysterious stranger for the present. That alone will be an attraction. We'll see to your introductions, and there are naval men in profusion. I like sailors, said Sheila. They are so unaffected and jolly, put on no side. She had been at a country ball at the age of sixteen to which the officers of a man-of-war, then in Sydney, had been bidden by a liberal-minded squatter who had invited the whole of the township, inhabitants in one act, and a great success it was, for Sheila bore about with her all the time the memory of two polkas, a waltz, and a gallop danced with the Honorable Mr. de Bracy, midshipman of the period, to their mutual satisfaction and enjoyment. "'I think you will have your share of partners, Sheila,' said her hostess. You certainly do credit to your dressmaker, and the upper stirk complexion will give you a chance with these Tasmanian girls, who are justly celebrated for theirs. What a transformation, said Blunt to his wife, before they put on their wraps. I never could have believed it. Of course she has fined down since the Bungeel days. I believe old Barney sold a Queensland station with thirty thousand head of cattle, just before the seasons turned dry. So she and her sister are considerable heiresses. She has, as you see, self-possession, and sense enough to avoid anything outré. You'll see, she'll get on quite well, make a success indeed. People say money isn't everything, but it goes a long way in this or in any other country, especially combined with looks and other good qualities. You had better dance the opening set of lancers with her for a start. Mrs. Imogene's predictions were verified. There was a certain amount of romantic interest attached to the fresh-looking, handsome stranger, reputed wealthy, and who danced so well. Came, too, people said, with that nice, high-bred-looking Mrs. Bruce and the bride. She danced the first lancers with Mr. Blunt, and while exhibiting familiarity with the figures, moved with the graceful indifference which has succeeded the erstwhile precision with which the steps were anciently performed. Mr. Blunt managed to secure an early waltz, and the naval men coming by shiploads, as it appeared to her, Sheila's program was filled in no time. That there could not have been a better ball, all the authorities combined to declare. The ever-successful secretary and plenipotentiary had once more covered himself with glory, the arrangements were perfect, the supper was a dream, and when Sheila found herself taken in by the captain of the flagship, the admiral, and the governor being in the immediate vicinity, she wondered whether she was likely to fall down in a fit, or if some other kind of death would result from such an overflowing flood of triumphant, ecstatic bliss. However, she did not die, or indeed was she likely to perish of nervous excitement consequent on pure, unadulterated pleasure. The early bush training, together with a naturally good constitution, would always preserve her from such an untimely fate. Imogene was carefully prudently introduced to Miss Laura Claremont, who prophesied that they would be great friends, and invited her and her sister to Hollywood, both of which Imogene accepted conditionally on her husband's, she laid a slight emphasis on that very possessive word, on her husband's not being hurried away by Mr. Frampton to that horrid Zihan. The upper stirt party, as we may for convenience describe them, got their full share of partners, it may be believed, being all of the age when, if there be an ear for music and a terpsichorean taste, 
what time the raving polka spins adown the rocking floor with good music suitable partners and a smooth surface nothing much better among the lighter enjoyments of life is to be found with miss claremont blunt had danced before when their steps appeared to suit extremely well on this occasion he saw no reason why he should deny himself the fleeting indulgence of once more gliding and sliding about with her in the accepted fashion she graciously acceded to his request for an after-supper dance and in one of the partly deserted side rooms they came to a mutual understanding which each felt was more or less needed i owe you a few words she said if our friendship is to continue and i should be sorry for it to end abruptly it appears to me that we were both in an exceptional state of mind when we met at hollywood for the first time and if something had not happened which did happen one of us would have felt a right to blame the other you have stated the position most fairly he said i hope you don't think i am so logical she replied as to be deficient in feeling believe me when i tell you and here her dark eyes glowed with a transient gleam of hidden fire which he had never before noticed in them i don't exaggerate when i say that it was a fateful crisis such as i had never before experienced it was most truly a supreme moment in my destiny he replied as she faltered and then stopped overcome by emotion but let me go on i entreat to make an open and full confession for i can never recur to the subject and i trust you to make a similar promise it is given said blunt in all sincerity then said miss claremont i will not deny that i was attracted to you at our first meeting more perhaps than towards any man whom i had ever met with one exception you were different from any one with whom i had previously come into contact this impression was confirmed as we saw more of each other i recognized your mental qualities i approved highly of your opinions your personal attributes and general character appealed to me strongly my heart was in an unsettled state i was weary of waiting and began to doubt whether richard derricker with whom i had been in love ever since i could remember intended to declare himself i am not believed to be impulsive but under certain conditions am very much so all women are interjected blunt possibly but let me finish and she hurried on her voice changed from the deliberate calmness with which she usually spoke to a hurried monotone if you had proposed to me that night i should have consented i believe but your departure next morning gave me time to reflect saved me most likely both of us from lifelong incompleteness which to a woman at least means settled unhappiness then just after you left my fairy prince made up his mind as people say and i am the happiest girl in tasmania i need not ask about your feeling it is written in large print over both of you and here she comes i don't wonder i was in a most forlorn and wretched state said blunt when you took pity on me and healed my wounds by your sympathetic kindness never think you could have done me an injury and you must let me say even under our changed conditions that i should not have been a lifelong sufferer but as in your case the fairy princess was persuaded of her knight's fidelity the falsehoods set about by enemies were disproved and the castle rang with troubadour ballads and the usual merry-making when the traitors and faders were put into their proper places and so the incident is closed and in all gratitude and enduring friendship it is a case of as you were yes i know i know said the fair lord no more protestations or else your wife will require explanations too who is the very handsome damsel she has with her 
Well, a great friend of mine, who stood by me staunchly in my tribulations and rendered me timely aid. She is a New South Wales heiress. I will tell you about her another time. We have been looking for you, Miss Claremont, said Imogene. I was anxious to introduce my friend Miss Maguire, a friend of my husband's, too, who did him important service at a critical juncture without which, between you and me, things might have turned out differently. Mr. Blunt gave me to understand as much, said Miss Claremont, and I am most happy to welcome any friend of yours or his to our island home. I hope you have enjoyed yourself, Miss Maguire. "'More than I ever did in my life before,' said Sheila, with such evident sincerity that no one could help smiling. "'I think the people here are the kindest and pleasantest I ever met. I have often heard of Hobart hospitality, but never expected to find it anything like this. I hope we shall continue to deserve such a good character. Strangers do generally approve of us, and there is no doubt we are always delighted to see them. I suppose we ought to make a move, Mrs. Blunt.' I see Richard looking out anxiously for me. We must all go and thank Claude Clinton if he isn't dead with fatigue. We owe a great deal to him. That we do, said Sheila naively. He told me he had been hard at work since daylight arranging thousands of things. Poor fellow. I quite pitied him. I was nearly offering to help with the supper. I am supposed to be clever in that line. You might have come off as well as the girl who volunteered to take the parlor-maid's place when her sister was short of one at a big dinner, and afterwards married a baronet with ten thousand a year who thought she said, Sherry, sir, so nicely. I see Claude Clinton over there, interposed Blunt, who thought the situation was becoming critical. He'll be fast asleep if we don't go and pelt him with congratulations. Say something nice to him, Sheila. "'That I will,' said she with effusion. "'I quite love him for his kind-heartedness.' "'You're not the only grateful one,' said Miss Claremont. "'But you'll have to wait your turn. "'Dick must make a speech, and we'll all say amen.' "'I'll do anything if you'll come home,' said that gentleman. "'You girls would stay till daylight, I believe. "'Claude, my boy, come here and be publicly thanked. "'These ladies have constituted themselves a deputation "'and wish to assure you that this is the best ball they ever were at in their lives.' that it wouldn't have been half as good but for you, that they will be everlastingly grateful for the perfect arrangements you have made. Miss McGuire can't express her feelings in words, but is most anxious to. Oh, Mr. Derricker, cried Sheila, blushing to the roots of her hair. Pray don't. Oh, don't interrupt. She's most anxious to say amen. Amen, said Sheila gravely and evidently much relieved. For what we have received, etc., etc., continued Mr. Derricker. Now for shawls and the carriage. Can we set you down at the club, Claude, and you can make a suitable reply on the way? Possibly he did, as he was wedged in close to Sheila, and what he had to say was in a softly murmurous tone, akin to that of the surges on the shore, which the silence of the summer night made clearly audible. After the triumphant success of the ball, other entertainments followed in quick succession, in which the visitors— civil, naval, and military vied with each other in keeping up the excitement, so that the season of 1800 was long known as the most successful, harmonious, and generally mirthful period recorded in Tasmanian annals. Races, regattas, picnics, gymkhanas were in turn attended by crowds of visitors from all the colonies. Of four-in-hand drags there was quite a procession, Agriculture was prospering, stock was high in price and quality, mining operations and investments not only in this but in all the other colonies were phenomenally payable, 
the financial glow shed by the ever-increasing almost fabulous yield of the Comstock, and of the great copper and tin mines Mount Lyell and Mount Bischoff, gave a magical luster to all monetary transactions. A kind of Arabian Nights glamour was cast over the existence of the dwellers in the land, and of all the excited crowds who had hurried to the favoured isle where Aladdin's cave seemed suddenly to have opened its treasure chambers in real life and in broad day, to the favoured inhabitants of the far south isle. Foremost among the gay throngs who seemed bent upon taking fullest advantage of the revelries of the period, so appropriate, so suitable, so thoroughly in harmony with the spirit of the hour, were the festive celebrities of the Victorian party by which name they began to be known. Mr. Blunt had no notion of receiving all the benefits of his newly acquired possessions without doing something in requital. His liberality was unbounded. He subscribed generously to all charitable societies and local institutions. He gave picnics, dances, and fishing parties. He even went the length of chartering a steamer and carrying off a large fashionable party to the weird gloomy solitudes of Macquarie Harbor. Here the frolic-minded crowd found their spirits lowered and their imagination darkly disturbed as they roamed amid the ruinous prison-houses, where rotting timbers told the tale of long neglect, of fast-fading memories of crime and suffering. They gazed on the immense tenantless buildings with hundreds of cubicles, the mouldering walls, roofless and ivy-grown, the church where it was deemed that the wretches whose lives were one long foretaste of hell might be turned to hopes of heaven after completing a life of imprisonment, torture, and despair. Vehicles were in attendance besides saddle-horses and guides, under whose safe conduct the revellers made their way to the silent deserted settlement, whence long ago the ghastly procession of chained men marched at morn to commence each day, a day in which they cursed their birth-hour at dawn and eve, ending it by trusting that each night might be their last. The visitors trod the rotting planks of the stage, where fierce dogs had bayed and torn at their chains, as they scented the escaping convict where more than one such desperate felon had been literally torn in pieces or escaped the hounds to die a more terrible death amid the sharks which swarmed round the pier. These and other relics of the bad old days of mystery and fear having been shudderingly regarded by the awed and whispering company, the albatross departed with a fair wind, a smooth sea, and her much-relieved visitors, who, ignorant of man's cruelty, marveled such relics here should be. Yet as the stars came out and sat upon thrones, looking with sleepless eyes upon the shadowy outlines of the darksome forest and the savage coast, a wailing night wind arose sounding as a ghostly accompaniment to the dirge-like murmur of the great army of the dead, buried and unburied, around the accursed charnel-houses which had polluted even the Dantean wilderness. "'Oh, let us get away from this dreadful place,' said Imogene, clinging to her husband's arm, and I vote against seeing any other chamber of horrors." We come to Hobart for rest and pleasure while this halcyon season lasts. Let us not sadden our souls by one thought of the terrors in which this place is steeped. I should like to blot out their very memory and consume the relics off the face of the earth. It must not be considered either that the truce of God, as cessation of siege or battle was medievally termed, which the happy isle proclaimed to the war-worn denizens of other colonies, less happily situated for rest and recreation, was entirely devoted to play. This year was the session wisely ordained as fitted in with the general vacation for the meeting of the Society for the Advancement of Science. 
Hither came, therefore, to leaven the ordinary frivolities, learned professors from Australasian universities, legal luminaries, judges, the QC and the rising barrister, mercantile magnates, statisticians of worldwide fame, even, indeed, Sir Gregory Gifford, also Sir Harold Harfager, an ex-proconsul of our Indian Empire. They were vice-regal guests, minor luminaries, such as authors, war correspondents, politicians, homegrown and foreign. In fact, almost all the men of light and leading were represented at this unique gathering. Missionaries from far Pacific Isles who had faced cannibal hordes and heard the yell from crowded war canoes when poisoned arrows were in the air. They had their philological treasures and hard-won trophies to exhibit. The crowded lecture-rooms testified to the interest taken in the soldiers of the Army of Peace. To add to the satisfaction with which the various excitements and entertainments were availed of by the party from the Upper Sturt, it so chanced that in consequence of the favorable seasons Edward Bruce was enabled to join them a month earlier than he had expected. He was, moreover, in excellent spirits, openly avowing his intention to devote his stay in Hobart to pleasure unalloyed, as compensation for his late pastoral anxieties. He was not contented, however, after a fortnight's idleness without organizing a trip to the mine, which had lately so developed in wealth, prestige, and reputation, that it was difficult to say whether it belonged to Tasmania or Tasmania belonged to it. Everything and everybody appeared to be in a state of unprecedented prosperity in that happy and carefree Annis Mirabilis, if ever there was one. Mrs. Bruce and Imogene mildly reproached Bruce for being in such a hurry to leave his family after so long an absence and what was worse, carrying off Imogene's husband. However, he, a man of unresting energy and enterprise, declared that he could not stand any more of this lotus-eating life, and that if he did not get away out to the mine, he would have to return to Miranda. At this dreadful threat, Mrs. Bruce capitulated, fearing a premature departure from this land of utopian delights, where the children were improving so fast and gaining a reserve of vigor impossible in a hotter climate. This consideration in the devoted mother's eyes overbore all others, and caused her to look philosophically upon the proposed expedition, which was accordingly decided upon and a day fixed for the start, the which came off without accident or delay. It may be doubted whether, except in theatrical stage life, anything surpasses in rapidity of transformation the change from a fragment of the primeval wilderness into a thickly populated town founded on a gold or silver field of proved richness, Macadamized streets and level footpaths take the place of miry dray tracks and sloughs of despond. So was it in the city of Comstock. Handsome hotels and shop fronts with plate glass windows had succeeded weatherboard and slab shanties with bark roofs. The electric light in globe and street lamps shed its searching radiance through the main thoroughfare and alley. The diurnal coach by which our travellers arrived was well horsed and punctual to a fault. The police magistrate and warden of Goldfields, assisted by a strong body of police, preserved order and punished evildoers with such deterrent strictness that offenses against the law were almost unknown. A municipality with mayor, councillors, and aldermen had been formed after the British pattern. Thus the foundations of earliest English law had been laid, and as the erstwhile barren, hopeless lodge in the wilderness increased in wealth and population, so the state, broad-based upon the people's will, emerged ready-made only awaiting that gradual development which comes instinctively in Anglo-Saxon communities to pass from the rude stage of the mining camp to the perfected organization of the city. 
It was soon made apparent to the party that Hobart was not the only place where public entertainments and festive gatherings were to be found. The mayor and corporation of Comstock, waiting upon the distinguished visitors, whose arrival was duly chronicled in the Clarion, invited them to a formal banquet where champagne and profusion was exhibited, and the health of their guests proposed by the mayor, Mr. Frampton Tregonwell, who made honorable mention of that distinguished pastoralist and explorer, Mr. Edward Hampton Bruce. Before this function they had been taken to the lower levels of the mine, when the drives being lighted up and a few judiciously selected masses of native silver and malachite looked up for the occasion. Mr. Bruce formed the opinion that he stood in a quarry of one of the chief precious metals. Being a man of business habits as well as of pastoral experience, he took the opportunity under Mr. Tregonwell's authority to inspect the accounts of the company, and after examining the astonishing values of crude and treated ore, he came to the conclusion that his sister-in-law, untoward as had been the early stages of their acquaintance, had displayed the unerring instinct with which her sex is credited in her venture in the matrimonial lottery. The audit demonstrated the cheering fact that an income of from ten to twenty thousand a year was assured to each of the four original shareholders in this most fortunate enterprise. "'I suppose you and Imogene will be taking a trip home in a few months,' he said." With all this money and the prospects of the season in London, Australia will lose some of its interest. Such is our intention unless anything unforeseen comes in the way after the Hobart season has come to an end and you good folks have wended your way back to the Upper Sturt. I think of taking our passage by the first P&O steamer from Sydney. Won't it be rather cold to arrive in England so early in the year? We propose to stay a month or two in Cairo on the way, refreshing our memories of the Arabian Nights transshipping by the Brindisi route, and after a week or two in Paris reaching London in May in time for Imogene to hear her first nightingale. A very sensible program. I wish we were going with you. However, later on, if the seasons and the stock keep up, we may come and stay at your country seat. It was the most fortunate day of my life when I stayed at yours, though appearances were against me, I confess. However, I look forward to seeing you and Hilda in my native county, which is not wholly without interest, especially in shooting, hunting, and fishing. However, I think it's drawing on to feeding time. Champagne goes better after subterranean experiences than before. The banquet was a success. Blunt found himself referred to not only as the original capitalist in the formation of the great mineral property, which had advanced Tasmania by half a century socially, commercially, and mineralogically, the last word a trifle slurred, but as a patron of the fine arts, a generous supporter of local charities, and a citizen of whom they would all be proud, and would remember gratefully in days to come. They trusted that even in the splendid pageantry of the old and venerated society in which he and his amiable wife were so soon to share, the humble but heartfelt hospitality of the tight little island called Tasmania would not be wholly forgotten. Their honored guests had accepted invitations to be present at a ball to be given that evening for the purpose of supplementing the funds of the local hospital, and all hoped to meet them there. They knew that there were several representative institutions, including the library, of which they were justly proud, to inspect. They would not detain the guest by making further remarks. Mr. Blunt had no hesitation in saying that he was never more genuinely surprised than by witnessing the astonishing he might say unparalleled progress made by the town and district since his last visit. In the formation of the streets, and the water service, and the installation of electric lighting, and the hospital and library, 
Comstock was ahead of many old established country towns in Britain. Personally, he should always take a deep interest in the municipal as well as the material progress of the city, and feel genuine pride in having contributed to its inception and development. A general inspection of the local institutions filled up the afternoon. The free library attracted much attention. It had been commenced by subscription and with private donations, supplemented by books from tourists and visitors, who generally left any they brought to read by the train or steamer on the journey up. It was a heterogeneous collection, ranging from very light fiction to works on metallurgy, theology, and civil engineering. However, there was no lack of works of solid value, so that the miner who wished to improve or distract his mind had no difficulty in finding books to suit his taste. At the hospital, apart from typhoid fever and dysentery patients, the cases were mostly fractures and other injuries resulting from mining accidents. This establishment, as at all gold and silver fields, was most liberally supported, irrespective of race, creed, or color. No working miner knew whose turn it might be the next to be carried there in agony or insensibility. Many were the gifts, unostentatiously bestowed by former patients, in the shape of necessaries or luxuries for convalescence. These duty visits performed, dinner was undertaken at the Palace Hotel, a stately three-storied building with a veranda nearly twenty feet wide and balconies to match. After a more or less sumptuous repast in the Salle à Manger, electric lighted, where they were served by well-dressed waiters with wines of undoubted excellence, and a menu almost extravagant in variety but sparingly partaken of, Messrs. Bruce, Blunt, and Tregonwell sallied forth accompanied by a dozen dignitaries to the town hall. In this imposing building a crowd of dancers in plain or fancy dress were already in the full swing of pleasurable excitement. End of chapter 11. Recording by Philip Gould.